from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Ty Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. As investments pour into ports along the Mississippi River, it's also beefing up American farmers' competitiveness on a global scale. Our $2 million investment, I think they're getting a return on basically it's 13 cents a bushel. Michelle Rook gives us a behind-the-scenes look at the splash those investments are making. And in Hydrus Leak in rural Iowa and the 911 call that captured it all. We have an anhydrous ammonia accident. An anhydrous ammonia accident? Okay. I need this. I need, I need, I need an ambulance. I need hazmat crew. As we celebrate the hero in this Christmas miracle. She saved me. There's no doubt in my mind. That's this weekend's Women of Ag. And in John's world. Price takers and price makers. U.S. Farm Report, presented by Pioneer. What's next happens when experience meets expertise. Pioneer, what's next happens here. Now for the news. With a bipartisan group of U.S. lawmakers this week calling for the U.S. to make big changes regarding its financial ties with China, which, if enacted, could have a significant impact on U.S. ag exports. Specifically, the House Select Committee on China is considering changing China's permanent normal trade relations status and placing it in a new trading category, saying the country has, quote, pursued a multi-decade campaign of economic aggression against the U.S., end quote. Now, the status was granted to China by the U.S. in 2000 when it joined the World Trade Organization, giving the country low tariff rates. That's when U.S. ag exports to China only represented 3% of total exports. Now, as of last year, U.S. ag exports to China have reached more than $38 billion in value, making China one of the largest buyers of U.S. ag products, representing 19% of total U.S. ag exports. Farm groups sending a letter to the select committee expressing concerns about potential policy recommendations. It was signed by 16 ag trade groups, including the American Soybean Association, the National Corn Growers, and the U.S. Dairy Export Council, the National Council of Farmer Cooperatives, and Farmers for Free Trade. The group saying by possibly changing China's PNTR status, Congress would open up U.S. farmers and ranchers to immediate additional retaliation from China. Now keep in mind these are just recommendations from the committee and do not guarantee immediate congressional action. While USDA didn't make revisions last week to the nation's corn or soybean crop, it did make some changes to cotton. The low yield it projected in November, now even lower. In fact, it's the lowest since 2003. The downgrade in yields representing a drop of 18 pounds per acre, down 185 pounds from last year. It puts the crop at 12.8 million bales. That's a 12% drop from 2022. And forecasters also expect a drop in exports and a drop in cotton used by U.S. mills. We're definitely moving in the wrong direction for global demand for U.S. cotton producers. Since about 2000, we've seen a very sharp decline year after year on our domestic mill industry as that milling has gone overseas. And here we find ourselves now below 2 million bales. That's the lowest since the late 1880s. Meanwhile, USDA says global supplies of corn are relatively abundant, especially in the U.S. That's following the season's record crop. And with supplies up, 
prices are down. USDA is now forecasting a season average price of 26% below last year at 485 a bushel. But one good thing, the lower prices make U.S. corn competitively priced when it comes to exports. Not helping exports right now, ongoing backups at the Panama Canal. Reuters reporting that U.S. bulk grain shippers that are hauling crops to Asia are having to sail longer routes and pay higher freight costs in order to avoid congestion at the canal. It's reported ships moving crops have faced wait times of up to three weeks to pass through the Panama Canal, which has had a cutback on daily ship movements due to extreme drought. And grain ships are often at the back of the line as they usually seek transit slots through the canal only a few days before arriving, unlike many container ships, which have a consistent schedule. Experts say the delays could continue to impact grain shipments well into next year. A new report shows that farmland in Iowa rose again this year. The annual Iowa State University Land Values Survey found that farmland values increased 3.7 percent, or $424 per acre, to $11,835 per acre. The increase this year follows a 17 percent jump in 2022, following a near-record 29 percent increase in 2021. Researchers say the value of an acre of farmland is again higher this year than any other point since Iowa State University began surveying values back in 1941. The outbreak of avian influenza continues to spread, the latest finding in Ohio affecting millions of birds. USDA confirming the outbreak in what it calls a mega flock in Hardin County. 2.6 million birds have been depopulated following the discovery of HPAI in a commercial table egg layer operation. Since the fall, some 8 million egg layers have been depopulated across the country. Additional cases were also reported in California, Wisconsin, South Dakota, and again in Ohio. All told, 13.4 million birds have been impacted by high-path avian influenza since October. USDA is releasing its latest snapshot of America's farms and ranches. This graphic shows last year about 88% of all farms were small family farms that operated 46% of all U.S. ag land. Large-scale family farmers accounted for 52% of the total value of production and 25% of ag land. In total, family farms accounted for about 97% of all farms and 90% of total production. Some items of note, last year between 52 and 79% of family farms had an operating profit margin in the high-risk zone, seen here in red. The median total income of all family farm households was just over $95,000, which was greater than the median income of all U.S. households. But about 84% of all U.S. farm households earn the majority of their total income off-farm sources and often use off-farm income to cover some portion of farm expenses. And this is your last chance to sign up for the Case IH Holiday Giveaway. Each lucky winner will get a Case IH prize pack full of some great gifts. Those will be announced next week on Ag Day. Then the grand prize winner will be announced next weekend right here on U.S. Farm Report. They'll win a Farm All C pedal tractor. I mean, look at it. Wouldn't that look great under your tree? To enter, head on over to the website on your screen, caseihholidaygiveaway.com. Those are the headlines. Well, it is mild across much of the country right now. We'll have a check of weather coming up next. U.S. Farm Report weather is brought to you by H&S Manufacturing. Heavy-duty manure spreaders are available in 235 to 430 bushel models. Plus, they qualify for 3.9% financing through 2023. Contact your H&S dealer today. 
Time now for a check of weather. Meteorologist Martin Lowermore joins us now with weather. Martin, our chances of a white Christmas don't look very good at this point. Yeah, we're going to be watching throughout the rest of this week as we see a bit of a low pressure push over a good majority of the nation. This is going to stretch in from the Great Lakes all the way into the southeast where we're going to be seeing the possibility of a little bit of snow out toward the Great Lakes, but also some very heavy rainfall in the parts of the southeast. They could be picking up three to five inches across some parts of Florida, Georgia and the Carolinas. We'll be watching that pretty closely as there is that potential of flash flooding. But as the week progresses, this low pressure is going to be pretty strong in parts of the New England. They could pick up a little bit of precipitation there, but you can already see this big ridge developing across the eastern or the western part of the country, and this is going to be moving in, taking over pretty much the entire nation that will leave us dry and quite warm for the first part of that work week and into the middle part of your work week. But we're seeing already this drift, a little bit of a trough starting to develop and that could give some of the rain across parts of the west, but still maintaining this ridge in the central and eastern part of the country. That's going to keep us again dry and warm as we end this week. And so of course, in just a couple days after the end of this week is going to be that Christmas time. It's looking like it's going to be a very rough time trying to get that white Christmas across most of the country, uh, mainly the best places to see if you really have to see that white Christmas is going to be the Rockies. Uh, unsurprisingly, we're going to be seeing very dry conditions across most of the Great Lakes. That's going to prohibit a lot of places. You usually have about a 50 50 shot of seeing uh, white Christmas. But again, most of us just going to be way too dry. Not a lot of that moisture still might be cold enough, but still no moisture really to be had across most of New England as you get toward that Christmas time again. It could see some rain out toward California, Nevada, and a little bit of the Mojave Desert. Going to be seeing some of that moving through just before Christmas. But the temperatures way above average as we get into the again before and during Christmas time. It's still looking quite warm for all of us with the places up in the northern plains just stretching all the way toward the Great Lakes could be seeing some of those temperatures 10 15 degrees above that normal. So it's looking pretty warm and pretty dry as we're ending this year. Of course, talk about that rainfall. This is going to be in through the next seven days. There's that low pressure system making its way up the eastern seaboard. You can see how much rain they're going to be seeing upwards two, three, four isolated up to five inches in some parts as this low pressure makes its way up a lot of the eastern coast. So be on the watch out if you're going to be sitting on the east coast. We could be seeing some flash flooding as you head into your next week. Thanks, Martin. Well, it's not just South American weather moving the market. Argentina's new president says he's prepared to take drastic steps to tackle the country's economic problems. What impact could that have on ag and why did it scare the markets? Chip Nellinger of agmarket.net and Brian Grady, editor of Pro Farmer. Join me next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Brian Grady and Chip Nellinger joining us. Brian Salt some pretty significant moves in the soybean market this week. Is it just South American weather right now that's driving that? No, uh, you know, it's it's South American weather, especially uh, 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 with everything that's going on with the soybean crop down in Brazil, uh, but also in Argentina. The the change of uh, leadership there, the the new president coming in, his new economic plans and, and everything that that entails. And, and uh, you know, the market's still trying to figure out uh, what that'll mean as we move forward. But uh, there's a lot of moving parts in South America right now. Yeah, we'll get into Argentina's new president here in a second. second. But Chip... You know, when we were talking about South America last weekend on the show, after we saw USDA's latest report not make many, making many adjustments there, and they talked about how it's simply just too early right now when it comes to South American weather. But now are we getting into the heat of it? 
Yeah, we really are, especially for the bean crop down there. Uh, it is uh, certainly crunch time the next six or eight weeks. They had a little bit of a delay getting that crop planted. Uh, they were waiting on some rain and it was too dry to germinate seed. Uh, but now the crop's in the ground in the next six or eight weeks as you get into January and the first couple weeks of February really are more important. And uh, it's less than ideal down there. They have received a little bit of rainfall in some of those dry areas, but uh, the 10 day forecast here uh, has triple digit heat again. They've really battled the heat uh, all season long down there and uh, really just uh, a lack of rain way, way below normal rainfall. So it, uh, the, the market, the bean market, especially has been a little bit reserved putting a bunch of weather premium in it. But I think especially as you turn the calendar to January, uh, it's really going to start mattering a lot more to that bean crop down there. Yeah, you weigh the impacts on soybeans, you weigh the impacts on their safrina corn crop. Right now, when you look at weather and the potential damage that it could do, do you think that this could have a bigger impact on soybeans or corn, Brian? Uh, actually, I, th I think it's corn, uh, soybeans up front, but uh, uh, the Safrina corn crop in Brazil accounts for about three quarters of their total production. And so that's a story that, that will be told as we move forward because that crop isn't planted until after soybeans are harvested. So uh, we the market still has some time. And I think that that's why we haven't seen the, the corn market react to the Brazilian stuff yet, beca because they do have time and uh, they're taking their time. They're waiting to see how uh, whether or not the weather situation turns around. But uh, um, Safrina corn acreage is going to be down and, and probably down more significantly than what the market has been anticipating all the way through. Chip, Brian had mentioned Argentina's new president taking some drastic steps to address some of the economic challenges that they have there. There's some rumors going around like they could beef up their wheat production by as much as 60 percent. They're going to do away with some export taxes. I mean, what rumors are out there and are there is there any truth to it right now? Yeah, well, there are a lot of rumors. I, I think the one thing that the market reacted to initially, uh, we saw kind of midweek, some weakness uh, in our corn, bean and, and wheat market here was almost overnight or essentially overnight, a 60% devaluation of their currency. And so all things um, uh, be beyond that put aside, that devaluation of their currency is going to make them more competitive in the world market. Now, there's been all kinds of talk about doing away with export taxes. Um, and, and I think the president would like that. But I think that needs approval from Congress, and his party doesn't have the majority in Congress. In fact, there was a little bit of talk that they're actually going to increase corn and wheat uh, export taxes here initially. So that export tax situation is really a volatile situation. Nobody knows anything about that yet, how that will turn out. But the devaluation of the currency, I think, in the big picture um, is something that definitely is, uh, is puts them in a more competitive standpoint irregardless of their export tax situation. Now, in the short run, they don't have anything to really export right now anyway. But as they get a new crop here several months down the road, that really puts them in a better position as their currency devalues against other currencies in the world. How much more of a competitor could they become, Brian? Well, uh, you know, we saw the the impacts from the last year's drought ravage crop uh, and what it had here in the United States for soy product exports. Um, so their production is going to increase significantly year over year just because they're returning to a more normal weather pattern with the, the El Nino situation. So uh, they will be much more of a competitor. Uh, I think the what the market needs to weigh right now is we're getting back some of that Argentine production that was lost last year to drought. Out, how much is Brazil going to lose and what's the net impact between the two countries? All right. Well, just getting started with our marketing conversation. Are the highs in 
in the cattle market. We're going to ask Chip and Brian that coming up later on the show. Stay with us. We need to take a quick break. The difference between price makers and price takers in agriculture. That's John's World this week. One of the long-standing complaints about farming, and farmers have a lot of long-standing complaints, is that we are price takers, not price makers. Like all folk sayings, the appearance of veracity is enhanced by the fact that it rhymes. Apparently, true wisdom comes in couplets. This, is, this particular aphorism is not only tiresome but logically useless. The implication that we are forced to agree to a price established by our trading partners just doesn't make any sense. We can always say no thanks and move on, for instance, to offered prices. Additionally, we are not taking a price if we can choose which price to take by selling at different times or to different markets. Nobody forced us to take $5 for corn. Even with very few buyers, commodity producers can choose when to sell. Our analysts often suggest producers set a target price for future sales. When we're able to get that price, that literally makes us a price maker. The pattern of merchandisers offering to buy at a specified number does not make them price makers if nobody agrees. But price offerers just doesn't rhyme with anything, I guess. A case can be made that producers under various types of special contracts to a single buyer are price takers, but does it count if they are willingly if they willingly entered into those marketing limits? While this cute complaint helps farmers feel sorry for themselves, it doesn't reflect how open and liquid our markets are. Indeed, the internet has quietly overhauled and improved ag marketing by limiting most personal contact. Virtually all of our grain is sold when we feel like it on the buyer website. Grain selling is 24-7 for us right now. When you get right down to it, a price maker is simply the guy who speaks first. When farmers leave bids with their buyers, in the case the market does go up, for instance, they become the price maker. So a more accurate version of this adage would be, it takes a price taker to make a price maker. I like it. Thank you, John. Well, a WD-45 diesel machine repeat joins us with tractor tails. That's just two minutes away. Your next piece of equipment is on machinerepeat.com. Search equipment from dealerships across the country to find what you're looking for. Only on MachineRepeat.com. Well, folks, this week on Tractor Tales, we are headed to the Show Me State to check out an Alice Chalmers WD-45. have here a WD-45 diesel. Uh, it has, when we got up there, we was told as W it was running, but we found out that it had a D-17 motor in it, which probably is better because it has a better injection pump, starts a lot easier in the cold weather and everything. It was uh, in really decent shape when we got it, it's been polished. Um, we tried to run it, we run it, and then we let it set for a few years and started running it again and the diesel fuel got old. I used to think um, diesel tractors were easier to keep running than the gas tractors, but we found out they got the same problem with uh, fuel needed to be fresh. Uh, the first thing they looked, they said, well, that's diesel. I didn't know they made me around yet. So 
that's the big thing is the diesel and then it just looks nice someone's widened the rims it just it's got a big look to it for what size tractor it is we've been looking for a wd-45 diesel we got very few alex chalmers tractors and uh, we wanted a nice one this one turned out to be a nice one you can watch more Tractor Tales on our Farm Journal YouTube page. When we come back, major investments are pouring into ports along the Mississippi River. So just how much value could that be adding to a bushel of soybeans? Michelle Rook tells us in our Farm Journal report next. And later, a miraculous rescue, story of survival and Christmas miracle. You won't want to miss this weekend's Women of Agriculture later on the show. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has been dredging pretty much nonstop in order to keep the Mississippi River open. That's as low Mississippi River levels have been a challenge all year. As Farm Journal's Michelle Rook tells us, investments are also pouring into ports along the Mississippi River, and that's good news for exports. Major infrastructure investments are being made here on the Mississippi River and at the ports to help keep U.S. farmers competitive globally in the export market. U.S. soybean farmers have led efforts to improve infrastructure by funding research on lock and dam upgrades as well as dredging on the Mississippi River. USB has put up the money for the research to do all this dredging and since the farmers actually are willing to put money forward. It kind of encouraged the core to step up their timeline, I guess. The United Soybean Board invested $2 million to help underwrite part of the cost of deepening this lower stretch of the Mississippi River from a minimum of 45 feet of water depth to 50 feet. And that deeper depth allows another 500,000 bushels of beans to be loaded for export. You can put more freight, and in our case, soybeans, per vessel from about 2.4 million bushels of soybeans to 2.9 million bushels of soybeans. That helps to lower freight rates and adds to the value of the soybeans exported. Our $2 million investment, I think they're getting a return on, basically it's 13 cents a bushel, more of uh, what they're getting because of the more freight that they can put on a ship. So that will result in farmers receiving $461 million of additional value annually. The dredging project is only two-thirds done, but is already returning benefits. Last year, we actually saw a net increase in tonnage for our port for the first time in six years. So we have a 50-foot or greater channel from the Gulf of Mexico uh, to you know, about River Mile 170, and eventually River Mile 232, the project will be completed. USB also funded research to help with the modernization of locks and dams on the upper Mississippi River. I know Lock and Dam 25, we're doing some help with a lot of research in that area to try to redo it because a lot of our locks and dams were deteriorating. We've actually uh, offered $1 million to the Army Corps of Engineers for one particular lock and dam improvement project north of St. Louis. And officials at the port say their relationship with USB on these projects is invaluable. So the partnership that we have with them for communication, but as far as research that they do and the funding that they're able to contribute for infrastructure projects, for dredging this Mississippi River to where it was, is much attributed to the work that the United Soybean Board has done. So we appreciate the partnership. We want to strengthen it. At the Port of South Louisiana, I'm a Shawbrook reporting.
Thanks, Michelle. Well, more export sales on the books this week. We'll talk about it in our marketing roundtables next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Brian Grady and Chip Nellinger rejoining us. Brian, when you look at China buying, there was more buys this week. Is it changing our export picture at all? Are we still swimming in corn right now? Well, uh, so, you know, corn, um, yeah. Um, the, the export side of things is, is up year over year for corn. Um, on the soybean side of things, we're still down year over year. And, and uh, so, uh, interestingly there, um, you know, China had its SRW wheat buying spree. Now it's on to soybeans uh, over the past week here. And, and uh, uh, we haven't seen China come in as a, an active corn buyer yet. Uh, been little purchases here and there on the weekly data, but uh, nothing on a, a daily basis, uh, so to speak. Chip, are you worried about our global exports when it comes to, to, to soybeans? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's, um, you know, Brian mentioned here before the break, um, you know, we've seen them become much more competitive on the bean side of the equation. And that's something longer term that's a little bit of a fear uh, of ours as well, is even if you cut the Brazilian uh, crop back a little bit, Argentina bounces back with an average crop. They've got more beans year over year in the southern hemisphere, even with production problems in, in Brazil. So there's no doubt they are uh, a force to be reckoned with. They are putting big crops out. And it's cutting into our competitiveness and our exports. That's just something we're going to have to get used to going forward. I think maybe a bright spot on the bean side uh, is this renewable, um, uh, you know, diesel uh, market that we have uh, kind of popped up here the last couple of years. There's more and more of those plants coming online. So our domestic crush is going to increase and offset a little bit of that. Uh, long answer, though, no question, South America, Brazil and Argentina, both going to be very competitive and uh uh, a, a force to be reckoned with going going forward from our perspective. Well, Chip mentioned bright spot in soybeans, but bright spot in all commodities this year had been cattle prices. I mean, we saw new contract highs. Now we just continue to fall. What is pressuring these cattle prices, Brian? Well, there rarely hasn't been a fundamental change. You can go back and, and look at the October cattle on feed report, and, and it surprised everybody with the placements number being as big as it was. Um, you know, we followed that up in November with a, another big placements number, but uh, uh, really the fundamentals haven't changed. It was a simply a, a movement of money and, and money flow. Uh, funds at longstanding positions in the cattle market, uh, they decided to get out, and they got out in a big way, and, and that big money flow uh, really put a top in that market. And, and uh, now we, we're searching for a bottom. We're searching for a bottom, not only in the futures, but also the cash market, because the, the future sell-off had a big impact on cash cattle prices. We're still searching for a bottom. Chip, do you think the highs in the cattle market are in? I do think that they're in, just simply because of what Brian said. The, the money flow situation, you know, it was a very bullish fundamental situation for two years. The funds made a ton of money being long uh, in, in both cattle and feeders. Uh, they got essentially out of that entire position. And when you see that type of a, a money flow switch uh, and the, the sheer amount that we broke from the highs in live cattle and feeder cattle, it's hard for a market to kind of reverse and go into new highs. All that being said, you could still have really sharp rallies, get back uh, a half or two thirds of what we have lost here. But I think it's going to be a real uphill battle getting the funds back involved on the long side enough to push us into new highs. I think we have 50% retracement, maybe two thirds, 62% retracement uh, of this most recent break. But I think uh, we better sharpen our pencil and be ready to, to uh, hedge that when we see it going into the first quarter. 
Brian, what are your thoughts? Do you think the highs are in? Uh, I do. I would agree with Chip on that. That uh, you know, I, I wouldn't rule out that that we could move to a new high in 2024. Uh, history says that on cycle highs, uh, you go back and and you retest. You get really close uh, on on the second move up, and and so I anticipate that we'll see something like that. Um, you know, from a supply perspective, it, it's still going to remain bullish. Uh, the concerns are on the demand side of things uh, with record and or near record retail beef prices here uh, concerns on the export side. And, and uh, so I think that the demand probably holds us back enough from making new highs. Uh, but I do anticipate that we will see a pretty significant uh, rebound at some point in 2024. All right, Brian Grady and Chip Nellinger, thank you for joining us this weekend. We need to take a quick break and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Lamar's Toy Store, the largest and most diversified farm toy store in the U.S. They have new and old and do restorations and customizations, too. You need to see it to believe it. Visit LamarToyStore.com or call us at 712-546-4305. Well, we've talked about water fights and also water rights, but water is the topic of customer support this weekend. A question today about Western water resources. I grow alfalfa hay here in Western Colorado. This area receives about eight inches of precipitation a year, and I couldn't grow hay without irrigation water supplied by the Colorado River. As I'm sure you are aware, we are in a long-term drought. Lake Powell, just downstream from here, is the lowest it's ever been. Lately, I've been selling hay to ranchers who normally have their own hay crops to sell. If the cattle industry in the southwest, southwest literally dries up, how will that impact the overall cattle market? A struggle between agriculture and municipal water users is developing. Farmers and ranchers are going to have to justify our lifestyle. How can you weigh the use of a limited commodity, water, for agriculture or for municipalities? And that's from Mill Schaefer in Grand Junction, Colorado, and I need the rest of your address. The problem with water allocation in the West is becoming an economic and cultural crisis as booming population growth confronts arcane water laws and entrenched ag interest. The example you cite using ever scarcer water for thirsty forage crops is one of the most popular examples spotlighted by environmental and development ad advocates. After all, it's not human food. It, until the atmospheric rivers became a thing last year, the hope drought would be relieved by weather patterns seemed far-fetched. Even so, just like we didn't predict the deluges in California last winter, meteorologists have no reliable way of anticipating such incredible occurrences, especially as temperatures continue to rise. Exporting forage loads of water from California fans the smoldering debate. We are literally shipping a shrinking natural resource to East Asia, mostly China. In my opinion, campaigns to rewrite water laws to bring them up to date are wasted effort and legal gold mines. I think it's safe to say water shortages in the West will only intensify. The solution is already apparent and underway. 
as much as possible let open markets, not politics, allocate the water. Encourage farmers to consider selling water rights and land to people for what the market will bear. Trust me, there is a price for even the most cherished way of farm life. Selling out may horrify current operators, but children and grandchildren will have less emotional attachment. It's not oil that soothes troubled water. It's cash. Thanks, John. Well, up next, one Iowa man thought he was close to death after an anhydrous leak left him blinded and close to blacking out in a field. But the Christmas miracle that happened next and the woman who helped save his life. That's our Women of Ag next. Times Women of Ag is brought to you by John Deere, who celebrates the strength and resilience of the women who make farms run. Mother's Day weekend, we kicked off our Women of Ag series, celebrating women and their many roles in agriculture over the past year. To wrap things up this weekend, it's an exclusive look into a recent anhydrous ammonia accident in rural Iowa and the Christmas miracle that followed. It was calm across these Iowa fields on November 19th. It was a Sunday, and Kendra Vanderleest says here in central Iowa, it seemed prime for fall field work. Before lunch, he decided it was fit to pull ammonia. She says her fiance, Joe Rimpy, spent all afternoon in the field. As the evening came around, um, I had checked on him, Live 360, and everything seemed fine at that point. And about 7.30 that night, she heard the tractor crawling toward the house, thinking it meant Joe was calling it quits for the night. I was in the kitchen making Josie's bedtime bottle, and I was prepping her bottles for daycare on Monday. And I went to put the, her bottles in her daycare bag and just happened to look up out and out the window and I saw the tractor and a plume of anhydrous smoke. Seeing that plume of smoke, Kendra's heart dropped. I knew it was Joe. I knew instantly it was Joe. Um, I knew what I was seeing, but it was just surreal. Like, there's no way. She rushed to grab her phone, and she said she was full of fear. And as I'm running up the steps, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, he's gone. There's no way. Like, as bad as that is, there's no way. Knowing she would call and Joe might not even be alive to answer, she called anyway. I knew I couldn't run out there into the plume. Otherwise, I would wind up dead or hurt. So I called him and he answered. I think he said, Joe, all I can say was help me. I hung up and called 911. Um, but I knew by the way he said help me that he was badly hurt. Hello 911, where is your emergency? We have an anhydrous ammonia accident. An anhydrous ammonia accident? Okay. I need, I need, I, I need an ambulance. I need hazmat crew. The urgent 911 call capturing the moment Kendra found Joe. Joe, I'm on the phone with 911. You need water? Oh, God. Okay, I've got 911 on the phone. Joe, just lay down. I'm going to get water. Lay down. I'm going to get water. All right. He's, he inhaled? Yes, his lungs are burned. He said his lungs are burned. The tank is completely unloading, but there's no houses nearby. Okay for anyone to get her. It's, it's bad. Kendra says she found Joe crawling on this gravel about 200 yards from where the tractor had stopped and he was fighting for his life. As soon as he 
heard me. He just collapsed. Kendra says the second she saw the plume of smoke, she immediately knew it was in Hydra's. That's because Kendra's full-time job is with the Iowa Department of Agriculture in the Feed and Fertilizer Bureau, handling anhydrous ammonia inspections across the state. So she knew exactly how bad the damage could be. He didn't have any burns on his skin, so the water didn't really do any good. There was nothing for me to dump the water on, but he, all of his burns were all internal. Oh, that looked burned inside. Well, what happened in that field on November 19th and the scope of the internal damage that was so severe, we'll have all of that next. Well, as you saw just before the break, when Kendra found Joe, he was clinging for his life. So what happened in the field just moments before, Joe details it all. As Kendra was driving to the hospital, she still didn't know what had just transpired in the field. All she knew is Joe was applying anhydrous, something he's done for nearly 30 years. I hooked up to a set of twins. Typically, the anhydrous tanks have a hose holder like this, but he says that pair of tanks that they received did not. So I tried to put a loop in the hoses. Well, my loop must have come loose. And when I was turning on the corner, the left front tire of twin tank must have ran over my hose and then it broke the front valve or pulled the threads out and it came apart. Joe says he was toward the back of this field when he heard a pop and gas started shooting straight toward the tractor. The whole field was turning fog and I'm like I got to uh, go to plan B. I do not know what to do. That's when Joe decided his only option was to head toward the house all while he couldn't see, and he was losing oxygen to breathe. I knew where the bottom terrace would come out at, so I could follow the terrace every once in a while I could see it. But as he got to this crossing, he says he couldn't see anything. I lost where I was at. I just drove by. Feel. Somehow he made it past, and at that point, the smoke cleared enough to see the gravel road. When I crested the hill, I was I was blacking out because I was losing air, and I really thought I was pretty close. At that point, the tractor stopped moving. I'd, I'd only pulled 1.1 acres off that tank, so I knew that sucker had a lot of anhydrous in it, and it kept blowing at the tractor, and I was so scared to get out, but I knew I had because was my only choice. He says he threw on a sweatshirt he had with him and grabbed a bottle of water he knew he had on the floor. And after he climbed out, he tried to run toward the house, but ran out of air. And I went down and I started crawling. Once Joe was airlifted, Kendra says she still didn't know if Joe was going to survive. Two doctors came in and told us what was going on. They could not intubate him because his throat was swelling shut. And so they cut in a bright which is an emergency trait to get air to him. I got to Iowa City. They said that he had grade one to grade two burns in his sinus cavities, throat, and deep into his lungs. Joe spent 10 days in the hospital, but the real work for Kendra started when they sent Joe home. I have taken about a month off work. The nurses trained me how to take care of him, how to administer his feeds and crush 
Crushes medication. Something she does every 45 minutes right now. Home health nurses come twice a week, but the best nurse, Joe says, is Kendra. She's good. <laughs> In this Christmas miracle, Joe knows Kendra is his angel. She saved me. There's no doubt in my mind. If she was over there, she'd gotten the scene. She was just happened to be looking. I would say there was about 15 to 20 miracles from that tractor to the corner of the yard to Des Moines, Iowa City. Survival that's also thanks to Kendra, who's cherishing the fact she can celebrate this Christmas with all their family. Well, Kendra says they both learned a lot that day, including a reminder that you can never be too safe, nor can you think that an accident like that will never happen to you. She says if they ever use anhydrous on the farm in the future, every tractor will have a full face respirator inside, something she wishes that Joe had that day. Well, what a miracle. Wow. That does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Speaking of Christmas miracles, next weekend is our annual Christmas in the Country special. We hope that you'll tune in for stories of tradition as we uncover the Christmas spirit across the U.S. Join us as we work to build on our tradition next weekend for Christmas in the Country. Until then, have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.